Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We are in the midst of our Fellows Program Training Week. This is the Epiphany Term. These men have come from all over the country. They came in July to study for a week and a half, and now they are in their final week of training. So these have been good days of Matin, Sext, and Vespers, our three worship services that we do every day throughout the course week, and really excellent lectures from Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Dr. David Field, Jeff Myers, Paul Buckley, and John Ahern. With last week's episode, we started a break in between a couple of series. We finished up our series on types of the nativity. Last week, we released a Q&A episode. And this week, we have a talk from Alistair Roberts on the tabernacle and temple as a bit of a teaser for the upcoming online course that he's teaching with us. You can find a link to that course and information about registration at the link in the show notes, or you can head to our website for more information. And next week, we will be jumping into a new series looking at the book of Colossians. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is Dr. Alistair Roberts discussing the tabernacle and temple. Starting from February the 5th, I'll be teaching a course for Theopolis Online on the subject of the tabernacle and the temple. As we look through the scriptures, we can see themes connected to the tabernacle and the temple and the importance of the structures of the tabernacle and temple themselves throughout the text from the very first pages to the very end of the Bible. One of the things that I want us to look at are the connections between the tabernacle, the temple, and themes of creation. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to explore these themes for a few minutes to give a taster for some of the material that we'll cover during the course. The course begins on February the 5th and runs for six weeks, two hours every week, on Saturday from 1 to 3 central time. It costs $100 to register for the course, and all of the details are found on the Theopolis website. Arguably the best place to start to think about the temple is by going to the very beginning of the biblical story and looking at Eden. Many people have argued, I believe correctly, that Eden should be thought of as a sanctuary. Eden is a sort of microcosm of the wider creation as it's supposed to be. Looking at Eden, there are a number of features of it that immediately connect it with the temple and the tabernacle. James Jordan has observed, for instance, the way that the pattern of creation in Eden follows the pattern of the original creation. We start off with a situation of formlessness and voidness. The earth has not been tilled. There's no man to till the earth. The earth is covered with an undifferentiated body of water as it's watered with a surge or a mist. And then this situation has to be addressed by an act, as in the first creation act, of forming and filling. What we have in what follows is a pattern that can be mapped on to what has happened previously in chapter 1. So first of all, there's the creation of light on the first day. Corresponding to that, there is the creation of the man, who's supposed to give light to the world in more of a moral sense. He's supposed to uphold the boundaries between good and evil, much as the boundary between day and night is upheld by the light. We can think also of the way in which the creation of the garden looks back to previous events. So in the second act of creation, there's the division of the waters above from the waters beneath and the creation of the firmament. In the second creation account, which is not actually a different creation account in opposition, but is looking at the creation from a different perspective, much as we might think about the difference between satellite view and street view when we're using Google Maps, we can see in that account 
that the second act of creation is the creation of this garden. The man has been created, and now the garden is created. And the garden is a sort of firmament realm. It's a heaven on earth. When we think about the higher heavens, the higher heavens have their analogue on the earth in this garden that has been established. And that garden maps God's realm onto the earth. And the idea is, over time, that that model will be taken out into the wider earth more generally. The third act of creation is a two-part act. On the third day, there is the creation of the, di- of the earth and the sea, and there's also the creation of the vegetation upon the land. And we see a similar thing in the second account in Genesis chapter 2. In that account, the garden having been created, the garden is filled with vegetation, and land and sea having been separated on day three of the original creation account, we have the separation of the various lands by the waters that flow out from the garden. So the seas divide the lands, and now the lands themselves are divided by land waters, the waters of rivers that go forth from the garden. The description of the lands that the waters go out to also gives us a sense that this garden is not the final end of the story. The garden is the beginning of a story. As we see the description of the lands, we read about the precious stones and the metals that are found there. The assumption being that Adam and his sons and daughters are going to go out into the wider world, gather these resources, bring them into the garden, and glorify the garden with these resources. And so what we have is an impetus towards a future story, the sense that we are at the beginning of the cultivation of the earth, Man has been created to till the earth. He's not yet going to start on that task. Rather, he's being trained within the garden. And then, as he learns his task, he's going to transform the world, bringing the glories of the wider world into the garden. And the garden is going to become, as we see at the very end of Revelation, a garden city. The fourth act of creation is the establishment of the lights in the firmament. Think about the sun, moon, and stars on day four of creation, And on day four of the creation account, as it were, in chapter two, we have the man placed in the garden and told to divide, as the lights in the heavens divide day from night, to divide what should be done from what should not be done. He's supposed, first of all, to guard and to tend the garden. His task within the garden is described using the same language that is used of the task of the Levites within the tabernacle in the book of Numbers. And that should, by itself, suggest that there is some analogy between their tasks. This task is also one that's focused upon the tree. There are two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These trees are holy food. Adam is told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if he eats of it, he will surely die. The tree of life, as we see in the chapter that follows, is associated with enduring in life in fellowship with God. As Adam is placed in the garden, he's placed in that firmament realm, much as the sun, moon, and stars are placed within the firmament of the heavens. They uphold the order in their realm, and Adam is to uphold the order in his. On the fifth and sixth days of the original creation, the Lord created the living creatures, the fish and the birds on the fifth day, and man and the other animals on the sixth. Much as on the third day, there is a two-stage act of creation. The Lord first creates the living creatures, and then he creates man. This creation of man, male and female, is that which brings the creation work, and it's weak, to its climax. And then on the seventh day, the Lord rests. 
We see something similar in chapter 2. Having created the man, the Lord creates as the climactic act the woman, and then they have rest together in the garden. They are naked and not ashamed. They are together as one. And that statement about marriage, a man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife, corresponds in many ways with the Sabbath that stands at the climax of the original set of seven days described in chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Putting pieces together then, we see here that Eden is a sort of sanctuary. It's a model for the world. Its pattern is going to be brought out into the wider world, and the wider world is going to be brought into it to glorify it. It's a realm for the training of man, for man to learn the pattern of the world, and then to bring that out. It's a realm for priests. Adam is told to serve and to keep the garden, much as the Levites within the tabernacle. It's a realm of holy food. It's a realm where man can eat of the tree of life, and man is told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a realm for communion. The Lord walks in the midst of the garden, and man can enjoy fellowship with God within that realm. Eden can be seen, in one sense, as the seed of the world, the world that's going to come as man brings his cultivating work out into the world. But also, it's a Sabbath garden. It's a place of rest. We might think of Noah's vineyard after the story of the flood. It's a place where they can eat the fruit, enjoy fellowship with God, and rest in his presence. The pattern of Eden's creation is a microcosm, as we have seen, of the greater creation. And putting these pieces together, we can see why the later tabernacle and the various temples would be seen themselves as sort of world models, as microcosms of the greater creation. One of the first and most marked ways that we can see this is in the story of the tabernacle and its creation in the book of Exodus. The instructions for the construction of the tabernacle are given in the book of Exodus, chapters 25 to 31. The tabernacle follows a seven-day creation pattern. And we can see this marked out in part by the expressions according to the pattern, forming, and then throughout your generations, filling and perpetuation. The tabernacle, then, is a sort of Eden model. Just as Eden was the sanctuary where the Lord would enjoy fellowship with his people, the model for the wider world, and the place where holy food could be enjoyed and man could act as priest, so we can see that in the case of the tabernacle. The tabernacle reminds us of the sanctuary of Eden in these various ways. It's an ordered realm where God and man can enjoy fellowship. The tabernacle is not just a tent standing by itself. It's a cosmic symbol. It's a symbol of a rightly ordered society and reality and world. The story of the book of Exodus to this point has in many respects been one of the breakdown of creation. The whole world of Egypt was torn down from roots to rafters in the events of the plagues. And now we see a new creation having its seed sown and it's going to be built up. The Lord is giving the pattern in the tabernacle and this will be the world that is going to be created in the place of the old world that's brought down. The judgment upon sin and the final wiping away of enemies in the rush of water might remind us of the story of the flood. And just as the ark was a sort of microcosm of the new creation with the animals and this three-storied boat, now we have a new microcosm. And this is why the Sabbath is such an important symbol for the Mosaic Covenant. In chapter 31, we see it is the sign of the covenant that stands apart from all of the others, much as circumcision does in relationship to the Abrahamic Covenant. This is why the seven-day pattern appears throughout the story of the book of Exodus and elsewhere. It's also why, despite all of the great exciting events within the book of Exodus, 
The construction of the tent in the wilderness occupies about a third of its pages. The establishment of the tabernacle is the seed of a new cosmic order. It is an Eden created for a fallen and sinful world. It's also a sort of Sabbath tent, just as Eden could be seen as the seed of the forming and filling of the world, but also as the culmination of the original creation account. So the tabernacle can be seen at the same time as the seed of the creation that's going to follow, and also as that which culminates the story of the Exodus. The tabernacle is a sort of sanctification of space, just as the Sabbath was a sanctification of time. There are also important contrasts to note between the original creation of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and the creation of the tabernacle. The creation of Eden was done while man was there. Man was created before the garden, and presumably man witnessed the creation of the garden. The creation of Eden, however, was done according to plans given by God to man, with man being gifted to perform the act of construction. We can think about the way that Moses was the one that received the plans, and then Bezalel and Aholiab were the ones who led the construction of the building. There are important analogies to observe between the role that the Lord played in the construction of Eden and the role that Moses plays in the construction of the tabernacle. God finished his work and blessed and consecrated the Sabbath day, and Moses finished the work of the tabernacle and blessed the people and consecrated the tent. In Exodus chapter 39, and especially in 40, much of the language of the original creation account reappears, but now it's related to Moses. This is another suggestion that the tabernacle itself is comparable to the Sabbath day in certain respects. If the Sabbath is the day when the Lord rests from his labors, the tabernacle is the place where the Lord will rest among his people. One of the things that we should notice here is the way that man was created to be an under-creator for God, someone who would continue and complete the Lord's act of creation. As man does this, he follows the pattern that the Lord himself has set and given, and learning from that pattern becomes more and more adept in working according to it. Looking closer at the tabernacle, we can also see the way that there are seven-day patterns within it, just as we saw a seven-day pattern in the creation of Eden. Expressing this in its broad outline at the beginning, day one corresponds with the Ark of the Covenant, the covering, the lampstand, and the golden altar, day two with the tabernacle itself and the mustering money, day three with the bronze altar and the bronze labor, day four with the oil for the lamps and the oil for the people, and then day five connected with the priestly garments and incense, day six with Aaron and his sons, and then also with Bezalel and Aholiab, and day seven with the establishment of worship, and then the appointment of the Sabbath. Let's look at how this plays out more closely. I've already noted the ways that there are resemblances to the original creation at various points in the description of the tabernacle. The tabernacle's construction is ordered according to a creation-like pattern in Exodus chapter 25 to 31. In Genesis chapter 1 and to the beginning of chapter 2, we see creation has two key phases. On the first three days, the order of the creation is formed by the division between light and darkness, waters above and waters below, and land and sea. These are great divisions between two things. What we have is the forming of the world. This responds to the key problem that is mentioned at the beginning of the creation. The earth was formless. The second problem is that the world is void. Now the world needs to be filled within the second set of three days. Each of the realms that was created on the first three days is filled. It's distributed to ordained rulers, and day four corresponds to day one, day five to two, day six to three. 
In Exodus chapter twenty-five and following, we see two sets of phrases dividing the construction of the tabernacle. There are pattern phrases which correspond to the forming, and ordinance or generation phrases which correspond to the filling and delegation. The pattern phrases occur in the first half, chapter twenty-five, verse nine, and verse forty; chapter twenty-six, verse thirty; chapter twenty-seven, verse eight. These refer to the forming stage of the new creation. The ordinance or generation phrases, chapter twenty-seven, verse twenty-one; chapter twenty-eight, verse forty-three; chapter twenty-nine, verse nine; and chapter thirty, verse ten, refer to the filling stage, where the newly formed order is filled and apportioned to its appropriate rulers. The first day begins with the formless raw materials that are assembled for the construction of the tabernacle. The earth is formless and void, but there are materials that are gathered together to form the tabernacle. And the acts of the first day are the creation of the ark, the table, and the lampstand. These are covered with gold. They represent the radiance of the Lord's presence and glory. The ark represents God's heavenly throne. The table is the earth beneath. The covering is the place where He sits, and the lampstand is the light of the first day. If the glorious light of day one of the creation kicks off the first creation account, the Lord's throne and the establishment of His presence and glory in the heart of the tabernacle are that which will correspond with the first day in its account. The second day, in chapter twenty-six, is the day when the tabernacle is created. And the tabernacle itself is the firmament between heaven and earth. The blue and purple veil with woven cherubim represents the firmament dividing the heavens above from all beneath. The tabernacle itself is a sort of heaven model on earth, and so the firmament, the division of its realms by veils and by the tent structure itself, corresponds quite neatly with the division of the creation, with the waters above and then the waters beneath, heaven and earth. The third day, which we see in chapter twenty-seven at the beginning of the chapter, involves the establishment of the brazen altar and the tabernacle court. The altar, which would have turned green over time, akin to the grass of the third day of creation, represents Israel and also the mountain of the Lord. The establishment of the court, dividing it from the land beyond, is like the formation of the land from out of the sea, setting the boundaries for the sea so that it should not pass. The fourth day. In the later part of chapter twenty-seven, involves the oil for the lampstand, which corresponds to the great lights created on the fourth day of the original creation. One of the things that we see within this pattern to this point is a movement from glory to lesser glory, and from inner to outer. We start off with gold items, then with a collection of silver, then a bronze item, then oil, then incense. Materials corresponding with the gathering of materials at the beginning. On the fifth day, in chapter twenty-eight, the garments of the priesthood were created. The clothed high priest is like a walking tabernacle in some regards, and so his clothes can be seen as corresponding to the tabernacle in some ways. His clothes represent the great divisions of the creation itself. The clothes of the high priest are also like his wings, enabling him to fly across the face of the firmament of the Lord, set to minister in the holy place. The sixth day, in chapter twenty-nine, the beginning of it. Is the formation of Aaron and his sons the day in which man was created as the image of God within the creation, charged with establishing and exercising stewardship over it? The priests are anointed just as the spirit of life was breathed into Adam and his creation. And the seventh day is the consecration of Aaron and his sons. 
and the establishment of Sabbath worship of the tabernacle, there's an evening and morning pattern established, the lasting rest of the ascending worship of Israel to the Lord. The tabernacle can be seen as like Jacob's ladder. It's a connection or conduit between heaven and earth, with the priests being like angels ascending and descending with the praises and sacrifices of Israel. In the later part of this section, there's a recapitulation of the pattern as certain elements are added. The incense altar is a golden item that corresponds with the creation of the first day. The poll tax, the gathering of silver, is connected with the creation of the second day, just as there were silver items used in the construction of the tent. The bronze altar created on the third day corresponds with the bronze laver. If the land was created, and that corresponds with the creation of the altar, the seas were also created, and that corresponds with the laver. Both of those are within the courtyard. The anointing oil corresponds with the oil for the lamps. Just as the lamps are there to bear light, so the priests who are anointed with the anointing oil are also there to bear light. The description of the incense can be seen perhaps as related to the clouds associated with the realms of the heavens, the cloudy heavenly realm that the garments of the high priest equipped them to operate within. Then, just as the creation of man and the appointment of Aaron and his sons, there is the calling of the artisans, Bezalel and Aholiab, and the consecration of the priests. And then finally, at the very end of the chapter in the section, is the appointment of the Sabbath. And all of this then corresponds with the creation that occurred in seven days. One of the things that this helps us to do is to recognize symmetries and connections between things. For instance, the fact that the oil for the lamps corresponds with the anointing oil helps us to recognize that the priests are themselves supposed to be a sort of human lampstand corresponding to the physical lampstand. Themes of creation can also be seen in relationship to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is a new sort of Eden. The creation of the tabernacle was the end of a particular pattern of deliverance. It was a Sabbath tent in that sense, a tent of rest, but was also the seed of a new creation. We see a similar thing with Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple has a sort of sabbatical character to it. Solomon's temple introduces a new stage of history. Once again, there are echoes of the original creation and of Eden. Solomon builds the temple as if it were a new creation. Like Noah, whose name means rest, Solomon's name, peace, has Sabbath connotations. After all the wars and struggles of the years of the judges of Saul and David, his father, Solomon presides over a glorious Sabbath rest to the land. We can see this described in places like 1 Kings chapter 5. The completion of the building of the temple and its complex, Solomon's house and God's house together, occurs on the 500th year after the Exodus. This is naturally suggestive of a great jubilee. In chapter 3 of 1 Kings, there are also Eden themes, as Solomon requests the knowledge of good and evil from the Lord. While Adam and Eve grasped at wisdom prematurely and rule, Solomon requests wisdom and rule at the appropriate time, and as a result, he's given it by the Lord. There are lots of creation and Eden references in the building of the temple. Repeated references to the completion of acts of construction that we see all recall the completion of the Lord's work in Genesis. 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 9, 14, 38, chapter 7 verses 1 and 40. In chapter 7 verse 51, there's a play on Solomon's name which recalls Sabbath themes when it speaks of all of Solomon's work being completed or Solomon. There are many details also that are suggestive of a fruitful, verdant, and well-watered garden. Pomegranates, open flowers, palm trees, lilies, cedars, olive wood, and streams of waters moving out. 
the two guarding cherubim figures in the inner room, images of cherubim on the walls and at the doors, and also the symbolic representation of cherubim by the two bronze pillars by the vestibule of the temple, should all remind the reader of the cherubim set up as sentries at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. Finally, the building of the temple, it's a building with a face, with ribs and shoulders, should all recall the building of Eve from Adam's rib in Genesis chapter 2. The temple is a sort of bridal building. It's a bride that represents the people to the Lord. It is also to be, like Eden, a sanctuary where God would be especially present and into which the riches of the nations would come. Within this world, Solomon is a glorious new Adam. He's the wise ruler of the world, one who is given the task of naming the trees and the animals, as we see in chapter 4, verses 29 to 34. When the Queen of Sheba comes to him, it's like Eve being brought to Adam, the moment when the story of the first creation reaches its zenith of glory. Many of the ways that the themes of the Garden of Eden, and of gardens more generally, can be connected with the temple, can be brought out from the book of Song of Songs, where bridal themes and also garden themes are very closely aligned. As we start to get a greater sense of the connection between creation themes and the building of the tabernacle and the temple and then the creation of the Garden of Eden, we can begin to understand the importance of this theme more generally in Scripture. When in places like Ezekiel's vision of the new temple, we see rivers coming out to bring life and renewal to the world, we should think back to Eden and the waters that flow out from it. As we go through the book of the Gospel of John, we should also see the way that its common use of temple motifs also works up to this sabbatical flowing out of waters and giving of life from the spiced garden to the world. It is a new sort of opening up of the temple and giving life to a new creation. These themes are taken up again in the book of Revelation. At the end of Revelation, we do not have a temple. Rather, the Lamb is dwelling in the midst of the city, And the city itself has a holy of holies shape to it. Its dimensions are that of a cube, much as the holy of holies had the dimensions of a cube. The waters flow out from it, much as from the Garden of Eden. But this is not just a garden. It's a garden city. It's a place where the riches of the world have been brought in, dressed and glorified. The gold of Havilah is no longer in the land. It's paving the city. The purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose of the temple, The purpose of the Garden of Eden are all being fulfilled. The Lord is dwelling with his people. They have fellowship. He will be their God. They will be his people. They are established as kings and priests to reign within the earth. They enjoy holy and life-giving food, the fruit of the tree of life, and its leaves which bring healing to the nations. These themes can be developed much more as we connect them with other things that we learn about the temple and the tabernacle in scripture, not least the fact that we are described as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as the church, but then also as individual believers. This is a very small taster of some of the things that we'll be exploring in considerably more detail in the upcoming course for Theopolis. Please consider joining me for this upcoming workshop. It will be wonderful to see some of you there. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.